You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So in his play, No Exit, Jean-Paul Sartre gives his own vision of hell, which are two women and a man, and a man who enter a room that doesn't really appear to be threatening, but they are sentenced to remain together in that room forever without sleeping. And all three enter with thoughts about their past. The man pretends that he was a hero of the revolution, but in reality he was killed in a train wreck when he tried to escape after betraying his comrades. The women had equally sorted past, and in the forced intimacy of the room, their guilty secrets are all wrung out. Nothing can be hidden, and nothing can be changed. Everything is out in the open for everyone else to see. And Sartre's imagination prepares you for his very famous line, You are your life, and nothing else. And the moral of the play is this line of doom that haunts the entire uh, act, which is that hell (laughs) is a place with other people. And when I heard that line and I watched the entire thing acted out, one incredibly dominating emotion came over me, and that was hopelessness. One of the unspoken themes of the play is a world without hope. See, to have hope is to have a very, very, very powerful thing. One of the most iconic visuals of the American presidency over the last probably a hundred years is this poster that ran in 2008. It was brilliant marketing, but it was also capitalizing on the entire tradition of the African-American church throughout the last three centuries, which has its legacy rooted in hope. And whatever you think of Obama and his policies is irrelevant, because at the end of the day, there is something about hope that roots you. It is a cemented desire for a better tomorrow, an unquenchable longing, the taste of an eternal future. And so many songs and hymns and spirituals crescendo in hope. And hope is one thing you have when you look around and everyone and everything is against you. Hope is the central message and the backdrop of the book of 1 Peter. Every exhortation, every encouragement, every instruction to every person is rooted in the foundation of the entire Christian faith, which is hope. When the world seems dark, there is still hope. When people are against you, there is still hope. When suffering hits, hope doesn't leave. We spoke two weeks ago that the people of 1 Peter were strangers. They were aliens to the context of the Roman Empire. They were citizens of another world. And the banner that flies over their life and the banner that flies over the life of the kingdom of God is the banner of hope. So the rest of the letter is built on the next eight verses. Everything that is coming, everything that Peter addresses, is finding its home in this doxology. So here we go. The Greek word for mercy is elios. And we get that word from the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which is hesed. And the core idea of this term is the expression of loyalty and faithfulness within a relationship. When you hear or see the term used for steadfast love or love and faithfulness or unfailing love throughout the Old Testament, what is being referred to is hesed. So when Moses appeals to God and intercedes for the people of Israel, he is pleading for God's hesed. 
In Exodus 26, God says that He expresses His hesed for a thousand generations, or His mercy. And in Numbers 14, 18-19, the Lord is slow to anger and filled the Lord is slow to anger and filled with hesed, unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. In keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love or your unfailing hesed, please pardon the sins of the people. And then the most quoted passage in the Bible, by the Bible, is Exodus 34, 6. And it is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, or love and faithfulness. So when Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, he is saying God has given us a new life because that is who God is. Not only is that who God, what God does, but it is at his core. Covenantal love. The faithfulness and character of God, who he is deep down at the core, is what moves us towards him. Kids may obey their parents who rule with an iron fist, but they are drawn to parents who are merciful. There is loyalty out of fear, and then there is desire out of love. This is the heart of the Father. It is mercy. And then it says that He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I want you to consider for a moment uh, an inheritance. So in our society, we call them wills. And wills in today's market consist of things like cash, homes, or personal items. But inheritance in the ancient Near East was land. And if you go back to the covenant that was made with Abraham, what is one of the things promised to him? It was land. And it would not be after, till after he died that the people of Israel would actually enter the land, but the land was unbelievably significant. It signified wealth. It signified status. It signified a secure future. It meant provision in a society that was built on land, where land was the dominant factor for making it in the world, possessing and owning it was a lifesaver. So the receivers of this letter are Christians spread out in the diaspora, meaning they are scattered. One of the things that is not theirs anymore is land. They are living on foreign soil, foreign territory. So status, wealth, and a future are not at all secure. And yet, in the midst of living in a foreign world with no earthly inheritance to their name, Peter says there is an inheritance for you, and it far exceeds Canaan. If you think about the three words that are said here, um, imperishable, the opposite of the land that was taken from the Israelites by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, and ultimately the Romans, this land will never be overtaken. What you have is imperishable and it's undefiled the beauty of the land of Canaan was ultimately defiled by sin and the ugliness and idolatry and injustices of the people of Israel and the inheritance that awaits the people of God is untouched by skin sin unscathed by idolatry and unintruded by evil it is undefiled and then there is unfading which means time will have no bearing on the wonder of this inheritance of this new kingdom it will never grow old or fade because of time and some scholars point out that this inheritance that Peter lays out mirrors an exhortation that Jesus gave to the disciples in Luke 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, 
where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. The treasure that Jesus is speaking of and the inheritance that Peter is addressing is not merely a land, though Canaan was a foreshadowing of that inheritance, but rather we receive the God of the land, the Lord of the inheritance, because the inheritance is God himself. It says, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance is secure, and yet our inheritance is not merely things. What God said to Aaron in the Old Testament, I find to be very moving. He says this, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. So much of the Psalms and so many of the prayers in the middle of the Bible are reminding us that God is our healing and it is God who we are after. So Psalm 62, 2, God, he only is my rock, my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Psalm 118, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. In Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And God gives us faith. It is God's power that protects our relationship with Him, and it is our inheritance. And our faith is His way of keeping us. It is His gift. Your faith, by the way, is not in the strength of your faith. It is in the object of your faith. Your faith and hope are in God. So when our faith falters, as it is inherently prone to do, We remember we are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by the God of our faith. And so our future is secure. And though we do experience salvation now in community, intimacy with God, prayer, the power of the Spirit, confession, breakthroughs, we also know that we are living in the not yet. Wholeness, healing will be revealed one day, someday. But now we wrestle with this in-between. The knowledge that our citizenship is in heaven and our irritations with what is going on right here and right now. And it is in this great tension where we experience suffering and expectation, hope and disillusionment, frustration and wonder. It's now and it's not yet. He goes on to say, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Suffering is something we would like to rid ourselves of, of all kinds, really. The kinds we have control over and the kinds that we do not. And there are, by the way, cascades of suffering. So we suffer because the world is broken. And all humans are sinners and all humans are sufferers. The rain comes on the godly and the ungodly. Hurricanes hit businesses and churches. Cancer does not pick favorites. Death is coming for each of us. We suffer because we are human. We also suffer because of our sins. Sometimes our suffering stems from actual consequences of decisions we have made. We suffer justly. Right? Being in jail is absolutely a form of suffering, and it could be that it is right and good based on the actions of said individuals for that to be the consequence. We suffer because we are sinners. Then, the one we have the most trouble with is we suffer unjustly. 
meaning we might suffer because of our commitment to Jesus. And based on our worship and devotion to Jesus, we live our lives in such a way that there tends to be significant friction in the way we live and the way the world operates. And that tension creates suffering. All suffering is valid, but not all suffering is created equally. And here, Peter is writing to these early Christians and he is naming their reality. They are suffering because their way of life is running against the grain. And what we fail to forget in a society that seeks to eliminate any and all forms of suffering is this. God suffered. Specifically, God suffered at the hands of Rome and the religiously powerful because his claim was highly controversial and highly political. I am Lord. Caesar is not. It was a jarring statement then. It is a jarring statement now. Jesus did not die because he was a kind man. He did not die because he was a moral man. He was not put to death in a torturous way because he said some outlandish things. Plenty of people in his day said crazy things and lived to tell about it. Jesus died because of his one big claim that encompassed his entire theology and discipleship. I am Lord. Caesar is not. God suffered unjustly. And he did not go peacefully, by the way. His prayer in the garden was full of frustration and pleading and wrestling to the point that his, he's hunched over on his knees. And the intensity to which he prays turns his perspiration into blood. He loves the Father with such intensity that he is willing to walk the innocent path of an unjust execution. But he's a human being who hates suffering and begs God, is there any other way? That was good. That was good. That was really good. I was right in my moment. And then laughed. Really nice. Really nice. I don't even know how to read that from that one. That was, uh, that was, that was good. He did also, Jesus did also, he also did not go amicably. He is humiliated by his closest friends when he realizes they would rather take a quick nap than get down on their knees with him and put their arm around him for 60 minutes and intercede for him. He loves his friends to the very end, and yet to the very end, all but a few literally leave him to hang in the sky by himself. And I halfway wondered this week, as I was preparing for this message, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We've always attributed that to the Roman Empire that crucified him. And I have halfway wondered if he's not asking for forgiveness of his friends who left him. There is no one who knows the feeling of abandonment more than Jesus the great sympathizer to those of us who are isolated and alone. And he did not find an easy way out. Pilate, one of the few men who had the power to free him, stands in front of him and says, do you know who I am? And Jesus responds by saying, do you know that I am? You have no authority unless the Father gives it to you. Jesus could have done a lot of things. He could have called down legions of angels. He could have spoken and it would have stopped. But instead, he suffered out of love. 
His entire ministry can be summed up in saying, take up your cross and follow me. And his disciples' entire ministry is summed up in them not believing the way of the kingdom requires a cross on their back. There is no salvation without a crucifixion and there is no resurrection without death. There is no actual love without a cross. The Museum of the Desert in southern France is a museum that is dedicated to the Protestant faith in France. And it commemorates the sufferings of the Huguenot martyrs. In 1685, Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes and made Protestant public worship illegal. So when people were caught out in abandoned fields worshiping Jesus, authorities would find them and send them to the galleys. And they would be chained to a rowing bench, and they rowed until they died. And there is a replica of one of the oars hanging in the museum today. And beside it are the words inscribed, My chains are the chains of Christ's love. This is not a guilt trip, nor is this me saying we should wish and hope for suffering like this. That is not what we should wish for. But as Americans living in 2023, I don't know if we have a robust enough theology of suffering for our faith. Even this week, I asked myself the question, at what point would suffering become unbearable for me? Like, how much am I willing to lose? Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Then though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in the midst of suffering, specifically for your faith, this is less about a smile on your face and more about a burning in your bones. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but one of the great opportunities we get when we read 1 Peter is to identify with people from across the globe, uh, particularly folks who have um, suffered for their faith dramatically. And that is the opportunity, by the way. That is a significant opportunity. The problem, though, or at least the temptation with that, is that we can say we stand in solidarity with them in pretty much lip service alone. The truth is, we only have to look around at our land to realize there are those who have devoted their lives to King Jesus, who have been captured by this living hope and have become a witness to the King and His coming kingdom. And because they have been so enraptured by a God who loves them, their lives were completely upended and they began to speak and live and act in such a way that disrupted the status quo and cost them significantly. Let me give you some names. Sojourner Truth was a witness of living hope. She was once told when she was about to preach in a building that if she preached, the building would be burned to the ground. And her response was, then I will speak to the ashes. Her original name was Isabella Bumfrey. It was changed when she received a vision from the Lord and he gave her sojourner because she was to travel up and down the land telling people their sins against her people. And later she asked for a second name because everybody had two names and he gave her truth because she was to declare the truth to the people. Living hope birthed that. Harriet Tubman was a witness of living hope. 
when Moody Bible Institute and the Presbyterian Board of Missions denied her the opportunity to serve the poorest of the poor in Africa, she went down to Daytona Beach with full conviction that the Lord had called her to the edges of the world and in 1903 founded a school for black girls known as the Industrial Institute for Girls, now known as Bethune-Cookman College. Living hope birthed that. Fannie Lou Hamer was a witness of living hope, a person of vital faith and a firm desire to follow Jesus. She led the march that would eventually lead to every person of color the right to vote in this country. The black church had increased her imagination for heaven invading earth, dignifying all people of equal worth, beaten and raped within an inch of her life. She maintained, God has promised me something. Now I must do something with it. Living hope birthed that. Fred Shuttlesworth was a witness of living hope, who if not for him, there would most likely never have been a Martin Luther King Jr., who stood in the face of fire hydrants and police dogs because he believed that the teachings of the Scripture meant that men and women of different colors were equally loved by God and thus equally deserving of education, and that if the kingdom of heaven was not segregated, why was earth? Living hope birthed that. Mahalia Jackson was a witness of living hope, a gospel singer who was the singer that would precede Dr. King in his now famous speech heard around the world. And she saw during his sermon in front of a quarter of a million people standing on the steps of Washington, D.C., they weren't really receiving what Dr. King was giving. And so she had toured with Dr. King for a while. And though you can't hear it in the video, there is plenty of record of it. She is off to the side and she yells, Tell them about the dream, Martin. Living hope birthed that. Howard Thurman was a witness of living hope. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, besides the Bible, was the book that Martin Luther King Jr. would bring with him everywhere he went. And steeped and full of conviction that Jesus tends to err on the side of those who have no one on their side, he gave his life to make sure that people of color knew that Jesus would meet them in the schools, on the buses, and in the prison cells. Living hope birthed that. Now I give you those examples. Because what those people did was not merely political. It was not merely social. It was not merely anthropological. It was Theological. It was the belief that the resurrected Jesus had done something significant in their life and their life would become a clarion call for another way and that way was baked in hope. Many of the leaders of the civil rights movement did not have some grand visions of a utopian society. They had the deep conviction of a resurrected king. Which is one of the reasons why back at the beginning of 2021 we read through the cross and the lynching tree. Because arguably, in the history of this country, no people group resonates more with a letter like 1 Peter than the African American church, who can read about the sufferings of Christ, and who can look at their life and feel the significant effects of suffering because of their commitment to Jesus, matched with the color of their skin, and through the deepest groans and loudest screams say, Jesus is worth it. And the way of Jesus leads them to say, This is unjust. This is wrong. This is why we march. Following Jesus leads us to very uncomfortable places to confront people and to confront systems and to non-violently tear down strongholds over people who claim, by the way, the same Jesus. 
And the outcome of their faith is salvation. God is here. God is with us. God will meet us. But we will echo the words of Daniel when even if he doesn't, we will not bow. It's the very sobering and real reality that people who deeply love the Lord in this country, in this neighborhood, were marked people because the color of their skin was distasteful to the majority. And what kept pressing them in was the belief that Jesus walked out of the grave, ascended to the heavens, breathed His Spirit on them, and said, you are my witnesses of another city. And by the way, it will cost you. This is the, very much the last part of Hebrews 11. And quite frankly, in this moment, I feel very incapable and unqualified to read this. But the writer of Hebrews is talking about the hall of faith, right? all the wonderful men and women throughout the lineage of the Israelites, how their faith was tested and passed down from generation to generation. Then it takes a very, very interesting and bizarre turn. For time would fail to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these... Though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something far better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame." and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. James Cone says in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear proceeds the crown we wear. It does not mean that there isn't doubt present in suffering, that there isn't sincere questions and honest wondering, does God actually care? Is He actually with me? And is He actually returning? But again, Cohn says, suffering naturally gives rise to doubt. How can one believe in God in the face of such horrendous suffering as slavery or segregation in the lynching tree? Under these circumstances, doubt is not a denial, but an integral part of faith. It keeps faith from being sure of itself. But doubt does not have the final word. The final word is faith giving rise to hope. See, a community of people who had no sway or influence, who were set aside, brutalized, and killed, held on to two things. The living hope of the resurrected Jesus and the promises of His. So 
So the prayer life and the song books and the rituals and the weekly gatherings were these small but vibrant embers that the Holy Spirit had lit. And they began to burn for centuries. So much so that it ignited a way of life that embodied the Christian manifesto. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And throughout the pain of being misheard, misrepresented, accused, beaten, dehumanized, many would go back to the Psalter and recite back the promises to God. And sure, they had many prayers of lament. Who would not? But they also had prayers of promises. God, you promised to never leave us, so remind us that you are not the one who has moved. God, you promised us your spirit, so ignite our hearts again with the flame of love. You promised us a name, so in the midst of our loneliness, you have given us a family. You promised to instruct us, so give us wisdom because we are confused. You promised us that your grace would never fail, so let it not now. And these promises in the midst of grief are not being spoken to God because He has somehow forgotten who He is. (laughs) They are spoken to us because we are the ones who have forgotten. Especially in the midst of our suffering, it is so much easier to pray our problems than it is to pray the promises of God. But the invitation is to warm our hearts around the flame of God's promises because those promises fuel our hope in the character and return of God Himself. So when the Scriptures speak of inexpressible joy amidst unspeakable pain, it's just expressing the dichotomy of the Christian life. Quite frankly, the Bible is way more honest about life than we are. But it is this hunger... That stirs our hope. And this last line, which I just think is incredible, it says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter is speaking of the prophets who wrote and spoke about the suffering and glory of Jesus. And I know it's hard to conceptualize this, but... We are living in such a privileged time in human history. The prophets would have killed to be alive right now. Because they were yearning for the Messiah to come. We are on the other side of the Messiah coming. They were longing to see what would happen when this man would save the people of God. We are the people of God who have been saved by this man. And the picture that this is painting, it's as if the angels are peering over the side of the balcony and they are watching human history play out. And I wonder if there is not some holy envy that the angels, as beautiful as they are, are not children of God. You are. They're just angels. We are heirs, co-heirs with Jesus, children of God who get the invitation to experience God as both Redeemer and Father. And the angels are probably wondering, how is it that God loves them so much? How is it that God has not blown up the thing and started over? How is it that God would call them His? That is the mystery of our salvation. That is the mystery of God. That the same Spirit that inspired the prophets to write these things thousands of years ago is the same Spirit that landed on Jesus. And it's the same Spirit that flooded Pentecost. 
And it is the same Spirit who infuses this church with His power. And the angels are wondering why. (laughs) Why? I think sometimes we may have a very... uh, I think we have an underdeveloped view of angels and demons. Um, But I I think this is just Peter's creative creative way of explaining it. Like they, they are marveling at the fact that God has arrived on scene to visit human beings. It's as if they're attending a wedding and the angels are trying to get a sneak peek at the bride of Christ. And they just want to get the first look. That is what is happening in this picture. And it is even more astonishing when there is suffering at play. Because when life is going well, it is easy to say praise Jesus. But when you are being killed at the stake, that is a whole different ballgame. Which is why James Cone wrote The Cross and Lynching Tree. The lynching tree is such a, a phenomenally terrorizing parallel to the cross. And it was all those people and some that were able to say, my God has not left me. My God will not leave me. It is there where we identify with Jesus the most. Jesus does not share with us in our sufferings. We share with him in his sufferings. Jesus is the focal point and we are just the gravitational pull towards him. That is what is happening when we actually find traction and our faith gets a little pushback. We get a small, and I mean in Knoxville, a real, real, real tiny glimpse. It's not very big. But a real tiny glimpse of what does it mean to actually follow the way of Jesus and receive a little pushback. That is a taste of glory. And to shy away from that and to fear that, we will just miss out on God. We'll just miss out. But to be identified with God, even in his suffering, especially in his suffering for the spread of his kingdom, that is what we want to be about. And a hunger for that is where we start. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need an increase in faith. A real increase in faith. Whether our workplace or our neighborhood or our own home. Our family lineage. We need an increase in faith. In the midst of any pushback, any challenge, would you meet us there and fill us with hope, Jesus? Sincere, living, resurrected hope that has carried so many saints throughout the centuries. We want that type of life. We want that type of hope. Would you grant that to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org. 